The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let's listen as Eliphaz, the first of three, Eliphaz the Temanite, Job 4.1, and I'm going to read just select portions of these two chapters. Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, Job, will you be impatient? Who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Let's jump down to verse 17. Eliphaz says, Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust. His angels he charges with error. How much more so those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Now jump again to verse 6 of chapter 5. Eliphaz continues, Affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. But as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable marvelous things without number. Let me come down also to verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles, and in seven no evil shall touch you. This is God's own holy word. Way back in the dark ages of the 20th century, 1965 in particular, I was 16 years old when the blockbuster movie The Sound of Music came out and was viewed by many and for many years thereafter was the most viewed and I guess most profitable movie. It had that record for quite a lot of years and I'm sure most of you have some time seen The Sound of Music. I knew about The Sound of Music in more detail, perhaps, than some people in its Broadway stage version starring Mary Martin. So when I saw the film version, I was surprised by a new song that composer Richard Rogers wrote and inserted 
in the film version, and most of you probably think it was always there, but it wasn't. They took a song out and put one in. And it was at the point when actress Julie Andrews realizes that Captain Von Trapp is in love with her and wants to marry her, and she sings a rather nice love song that was written, Perhaps I Had a Wicked Childhood. Perhaps I Had a Miserable Youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, I must have done something good. For here you are, standing there, loving me. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Well, I took myself to be a theater critic and also a bit of a philosopher, I guess, at age 16. And while I liked the song, and I have nothing wrong with it as a song, the concept or core idea of that song annoyed me, even as a teenager. And I think I can credit Christian training and a Christian worldview for that. The idea that something great or nice was happening in your life as a reward because you were good. And the flip side of that would have had to be, I did something evil or wicked or deceitful, and so something tragic or terrible would happen to me. And I was probably aware, even as a teenager, that that was an idea of life, a concept of life that many people have. But it is not an entirely biblical concept. And you wouldn't suppose that I was going to draw a connection between the sound of music and the book of Job. But I have to keep things down to earth somehow. And here's this senior wise man named Eliphaz singing a song as he speaks to Job. It's a, it's a poem, at least, if not sung but to music, telling his friend Job in so many words, Job, since you are suffering in such a terrible way somewhere in your youth or childhood, you must have done something really bad. Well, we heard Job wailing in chapter 3 last time as he cursed the day of his own birth. He even wished that he had been a stillborn child, that he had never he even said, I'd like to, in, in our words, we could paraphrase him saying, I'd like to go and find all the calendars in the land and somehow take out the day on which I was born so it wouldn't exist. And now we see him beginning to engage with these three friends who did a good thing in chapter 3, when they came and sat on the ground and mourned with him and said nothing. In fact, that's almost the high point of their contribution to this book, because we're going to see as they start to exchange words at great length with each other, Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar, each speaks several times. Job answers each one back. We're not going to plow through all of that verbiage. You'd suffocate on it, really. And that is not saying that any part of God's Word is not valuable. But there's simply so much overlap and so much repetition that we can sort our way through in a faster manner. But you're going to see the attitudes and the words and the mood degenerate, even from this first discussion onward, as these guys end up nearly in shouting matches with each other and pretty angry with each other by the time it's all done. In chapter 11, Zophar calls Job a liar. Job replies in chapter 13, you people whitewash truth with lies and you are worthless physicians. 
So they really weren't giving much comfort as they came and tried to fulfill that assignment. They did their best, perhaps, but it almost would have been better if they'd kept on saying nothing. Now, these three men are not clones of one another, and if you wanted to really study Job carefully, you'd find each one kind of has his own message theme. But there is a commonality to it all, and I'm going to try to summarize that commonality today as they say many similar things to Job. And Job replies, feeling more and more helpless as they just seem to dig his hole deeper and deeper for him. We do find by the end of the book, by the way, that when the Lord makes his will clear, it's the friends that the Lord is most unhappy with, not Job. And Job is more or less defended by the Lord for his way of of speaking for himself. The biggest problem of these three men, as we're going to see it in various ways, is a kind of simplistic thinking, a generalizing about things, trying to make general patterns fit specifics where they don't fit. They have this one pattern of God's working in their head that God brings harm and pain on those who are wicked or do any kind of sin, and he brings blessing and goodness on those who act well and act in faith. Now, those are generalizations that can be defended from the Bible in many ways. But these three friends thought they could take every generalization and sort of slam it down on Job and find a way for it to fit, and it just didn't fit. One size fits all, as the theory of suffering is not adequate at all. I have two main divisions today to look at this. I first want to just kind of survey it. You might want to have your Bible open because I'll refer to some things that I didn't read as I try to just scan through these two chapters of what Eliphaz has to say. Look, think of this first point as a correct-sounding but unhelpful message from a friend. We would suppose that Eliphaz was the oldest of the three counselors who came, usually in the uh, in the East, uh, age was respected, and the most venerable one would probably get the privilege of speaking first. So I kind of picture a, a man with white hair and a snowy beard. And uh, here's, here's some of the things I'm going to put taglines or subpoints on what I hear him saying. He starts out with great courtesy and says, Job, can I venture a word with you? I've heard you now. Can I slip a word in edgewise? And he has more than a word to say. He says, Job, you have taught many people in the past, but it's time now for you to learn from us. And I think the first thing he says is what I would say is the phrase, be consistent. Job, be consistent with what you have taught people yourself in the past. You have taught them the principles of of, uh, sowing sin and reaping evil, Think of that for yourself now. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4, he cuts right to the chase and says, Who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright ever cut off by God? As I have seen, Eliphaz says, those who plow iniquity and trouble reap the same. If you sow a crop of sin and objection to God and rebellion, you will reap that. He's saying, Job, look, you and I are men of the world. We know that we receive nothing from God but our own just deserts. Come on now, Job. You've been protesting 
too much. Apply the same standard to yourself as you have taught others. You must have done something really wrong before the Lord for this much misfortune to befall you. Well, then after saying be consistent, I think he says be realistic. In 4.17, he questioned Job, Can a mortal man ever be right before God? How dare you justify yourself before God? 18 and 19 there, he argues that even the heavenly beings who surround the Lord in heaven commit errors and are imperfect. So if God can charge an angel with faults, Job, how dare you defend yourself as if you have no fault? He said, you whose foundation is in the dust. He's reminding Job of that biblical truth, dust you are and to dust you will return. He compares him to a moth there. Your life is like it would be crushed like a moth, an insect that hardly lives for a couple of days. In 5.1 then, Eliphaz argues, is there any heavenly being who would come to your defense if you claim to be more righteous than they? Be realistic, Job. You're exalting yourself too highly. You're getting above your station in the world. And then he says again in 5, 6, and 7, man's troubles do not come from thin air. In other words, if you're suffering, that doesn't come from nothing. There's a reason for it. He says, affliction does not come from nowhere. Man is born to experience trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward from a fire. Then I think he says a third thing. Be consistent, be realistic, be submissive. 5.8. He says, as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. Well, great advice. Thanks, Eliphaz. I'm certainly pleased that you told Job to commit his cause to God. But the problem with that is Job's been doing that all along. And he cannot find out what it is that he's doing wrong or what he needs to repent of because he's not aware of anything, even as he deeply searches himself as as a, a, a man before the Lord and says, Lord, what is it? What are you displeased with? He cannot find out. And so Eliphaz is giving almost useless advice because it's what Job is already doing. Despise not the discipline of the Almighty. All right, great idea, verse 17. But what am I being disciplined for? I can't understand it. I've tried, and I don't know what it is that God wants from me. So then in 519, Eliphaz brings this speech to a conclusion as he describes how wonderfully God will deliver his humble, submissive servant who is consistent, realistic, and submissive. But this sounds so much like just a canned speech because, again, Job knows these truths, and he cannot find out what it is that God wants from him for all his trying up to this point. And so a correct-sounding but unhelpful message really passes right over Job's head. Well, now I want to ask in the second place with several subpoints under this, what is wrong with this one-size-fits-all idea of suffering that Eliphaz and the others are bringing to him? It makes me think of a uh, scene you might have seen in old Western shows or Uh, anyone, if you've studied the latter part of the 19th century, you know there was the guy that 
went around town to town with his wagon with a medicine show. And he had some magic elixir in bottles that he wanted to sell to people for a dollar or two a bottle, and this was his chief profit-making venture. Dr. Whizbang's Cure-All Elixir. Boy, was it great. Probably was made of a little alcohol and some olive oil and some cinnamon and some herbs and maybe a little dash of opium in there too, which you could get in those days. And uh, here it is. Dr. Whizbang's Cure-All cures cancer, helps the digestion, uh, headaches. It'll even grow hair if you rub it on long enough, you know. You, you're familiar with that kind of thing from the late 19th century. Well, here was somebody trying to sell a one-size-fits-all cure or medicine for all kinds of things, most of which it would have no effect upon in any way whatsoever. And again, this is what these fellows are trying to do. They're bringing general concepts which aren't really so bad in and of themselves. They contain some truth. Sure, it is a good generalization from the Bible that bad actions generally lead to bad consequences. If you drive drunk, it's highly likely at some point you're going to have a crash and you're going to hurt yourself or hurt somebody else. Psalm 1 tells the other side of it. Here's a godly man in Psalm 1. It says he's like a tree planted by a stream who's green in every season, who flourishes because he's following the Lord and seeking God and bearing fruit. Those are great generalizations. They're biblical generalizations. Others like the fact that God is in control of everything that happens. He's sovereign. He's just. He will reward faith and obedience and punish unbelief and evil. Those generalizations are true. But the problem is you can't take every generalization and press it to fit every specific situation of suffering. I might be suffering and not be able, just as Job was not, able to tie it to anything in particular for which God would be punishing me, just as I would say I could be experiencing great blessing and good health and and wealth in my career and everything else, and it wouldn't necessarily be a one-to-one relationship. Just as the psalmist in Psalm 73 tried to puzzle out, why are the, the heathen who ignore God and rebuke God and slander God, they seem to be doing great in their health and, and their wealth and everything else, and I'm suffering, said the believer in Psalm 73. You can't always see a one-to-one specific fit between some cause of either evil or good and some result in your life. I've seen recently the inside of one of our computer servers here at the church. It's very much like you might have in a medium-sized office, and some of you, I'm sure, have seen very large ones, and some of you may even work on these things or design them for all I know. But, you know, I've never seen so many wires that I wouldn't have an idea what to do with any of them. You open up this cabinet, and here's, you know, a pathway of, a dozen wires going off in this direction connected to something, and they're all colors, you know, red, green, blue, violet, white, black. And then here's another whole stream of wires going down here and another stream going up here and another stream going over here. And I could look at this stream of wires and say, well, there's a yellow one. Well, over here there's a yellow one too. I bet it's the same wire. 
Well, probably not, because in the middle there's a spaghetti bowl of wires all tied. I just don't understand how in the world anybody can trace A to B and say that's the same wire, and yet I'm sure that some computer engineer does know where this yellow wire goes and whether it's the same yellow wire that appears over there. But if I was to pronounce and say, aha, yellow wire, yellow wire, they must be one and the same, I'd probably be wrong. And that's what these guys are doing. They're saying, here's a man with great trouble in his life. And Eliphaz says, well, hey, let me sing Julie Andrews' song to him, Job. Somewhere in your youth or childhood, you did something really bad. And the generalization just does not fit Job's situation. Besides these generalizations being a problem of things that are true or at least half true, you have a problem of tone with these friends. If you want to be a Christian friend, bringing truth to bear in someone's life, you have to consider not only what you're saying and hopefully saying it with good theology. We Presbyterians are very concerned that theology be correct, that doctrine be reformed and biblical. But we have to be concerned, too, that we speak with graciousness. How difficult that is in this day and age, particularly in the issues of gender and sexuality that we find such wars being conducted in our culture. And we have things to say that, according to truth, are hard truths. They're biblical. They can be defended by Scripture. But people can be so put off by our tone and our arrogance and our smugness that they'll never get our message. And how to balance that is a constant difficulty for Christians. We need both to be truthful, but to be gracious. Job could have heard comfort from these guys that he never heard because he heard no tender sympathy, no real love for him. They were concerned, it seemed, with winning an argument, winning a debate. And if they did that, they washed their hands of the man. But there were also things that Eliphaz forgot about and didn't include in his reckoning. He forgot about Satan and the power of evil, for sure. Well, he didn't know what was going on in heaven, we can say, that we know. Remember, throughout this book, we know behind the scenes that these characters don't know. We know that the power and the attack of Satan is at work here. They didn't. They never even guessed. They never even asked that as a question. Might it be that Satan has singled this man out? They didn't even think about it. They also don't seem to know that spiritually, you, to analyze what's happening in any person's life, you have to wait for long-term results to grow and flourish. You can't always draw conclusions based on what you see right now. Yes, wicked people will get punished because God is just. Yes, the godly will get rewarded because God is gracious and good and he's just there also. But no one says that those things happen immediately. And you cannot always measure by what's happening immediately. Jesus urged patience in Matthew 13 when people wanted to purge the membership of believers following Christ and said, look at this, here's some, here's some people here that look more like weeds in the garden than good fruit. Can we pull the weeds and throw them away? And Jesus said, no, in any one field, wheat 
and weeds are going to grow together, let them grow. They will be harvested in God's timing. And he pointed to the last day judgment of God, which we almost never think about. We think people are getting away with everything, that God isn't judging them. And God says, don't worry, I've got the long term in my hands. Right now, blameless people like Job may be attacked, may be languishing in a jail as a political prisoner in China for their witness of Christ, let's say. Maybe their bodies are enduring long, painful disabilities for decades. But just wait. God will have his day when justice will out and righteousness will be balanced again. Finally, I say this to you. If the one-size-fits-all explanation of suffering that Eliphaz brought to Job was correct, if you would dare argue that it's correct, for this reason alone it is not. Because don't you see it negates the possibility of the cross of Jesus Christ? Let Eliphaz do some time travel. Bring him forward all the way into the New Testament and put him at the foot of the cross of Jesus and let him dare speak to Jesus nailed up there on the cross going through the horrendous writhing agony that he went through in suffering and let him say what he would have to say to keep his consistent message that he told Job. Jesus, I see you there on the cross. I hear that they say you're the Son of God, but I don't see how you could be. Because look at how you're suffering. It's, it's mind-bending to imagine that God would let anyone go through what you are going through if he is a blameless and upright man. So, Jesus, I have to conclude, you're getting what you deserve. Somewhere in your youth and childhood, you were really, really bad. That's the message Eliphaz would have to bring. And he would actually wipe out the cross where the Son of God could be a vicarious substitute suffering, not for anything he himself had done, but for the things that you and I have done. Do you see how that's a tremendous fatal weakness to his whole argument? He offered rules and formulas. He did not offer grace, the grace of God, which deemed that a totally, absolutely righteous person, Jesus Christ, could bear the sins of others and make atonement for them as a great substitute. Paul, near the end of Philippians, said it was his aim to know Christ by faith, to to let his life more or less be assimilated into the life of Christ. And he said it in memorable words. He, He said his goal was that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share in the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Did you see what? There's a mystery there, but yet we can understand it. Paul was saying, let my life be so folded into that of Jesus that he takes all my suffering." And I see his suffering and know it was for me. And then in our sufferings being blended, I become like him in his death that I would rise again 
by the power of God to a new life. Don't let people like Eliphaz with their generalizations blot out the efficacy of the suffering of Christ for his people. Every Christian who suffers any injustice today or right now belongs to the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And only a gospel of grace based on the cross and the resurrection can introduce us to true comfort, peace, and reconciliation to God when we suffer unjustly today, as Job did in his day. Let's pray together. Our Father, there are mysteries here. I thank you for an Eliphaz who could speak truth as far as he understood it. I thank you that he said biblical things, but I thank you too that his mistakes and his overgeneralizations were obvious enough that I might see how obtuse I could be in presenting your truth to a hurting person. Father, help us when it's really difficult in our culture to speak to those whose minds are completely blinded by misunderstandings of gender and sexuality, and they think we are monsters to represent your truth. Will you help us in that endeavor to speak truth with graciousness and love in any situation? Will you make us sympathetic in ways that Eliphaz was not? How we thank you that we see our Savior suffering on our behalf, and we know that it is not ultimately a great mystery that the cross answers every question that suffering poses. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.